BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good neighbors and good friends. Here we are, another Friday morning and time for another Reporters Roundtable, which I know you look forward to, looking back at the big news of the week with three of our top political reporters. <laughs> and what a week it's been. As they say, if you don't succeed, try, 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 and try again. Republicans did, and after four tries, they finally elected a speaker, Louisiana's Mike Johnson, whom Matt Gates and Donald Trump immediately branded MAGA Mike. And now comes the hard part. Can he steer the House out of a government shutdown? Can he deliver aid for both Israel and Ukraine? That's just for starters. Meanwhile, the dominoes are falling in Trump world. First, election disruptors Sidney Powell, Ken Cheesebro, and Jana Ellis plead guilty in the Georgia case and agree to testify against Trump. And then ABC reports that Chief of Staff Mark Meadows has abandoned Trump and made a deal with Special Prosecutor Jack Smith. Oh, that and a whole lot more to chew on for today's panel. So let's say hello to Linda Feldman, Washington Bureau Chief and White House Correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor. Hello, Linda. Hi, Bill. Welcome back. Jeff Dufour, Editor-in-Chief of the National Journal and author of the Sunday Nightcap Newsletter, which I always enjoy. Hello, Jeff. Good morning, Bill. Thank you for joining us. And uh, Zach Cohen, who is a congressional reporter. <laughs> He's been busy, been busy this week for Bloomberg Government. Hello, Zach. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being there. So, Zach, let's start off with you. This is your territory. When they say, Mr. Speaker, finally, <laughs> in the House of Representatives this week, somebody can answer that and say, hey, that's me, Mike Johnson. Uh, Zach, how did he get there? Did Republicans really want him or did they just get tired of voting? Yeah, um, as of uh, as of earlier this week, uh, Mike Johnson, the Republican from Louisiana, is the Speaker of the House uh, about three weeks after uh, a bipartisan majority in the House, mostly Democrats, as well as eight uh, hardline Republicans voted to oust Kevin McCarthy from that job the first time the House had ever ousted its Speaker. Right. Uh, and then there were a series of nominees, uh, Steve Scalise, the House Majority Leader, uh, Jim Jordan, the House Judiciary Chairman, Tom Emmer, the House Majority Whip. Uh, and none of those folks could get that magic number of 217 supporters among Republicans in a final floor vote, even though they had a majority of the support from the House Republican Conference. Uh, and then it, we finally got to Mike Johnson, who's number five in the totem pole, uh, <laughs> and ended up being basically conservative enough to win over the more the, the fiscal hawks of the conference, the more conservative of the conference, uh, and not enough baggage politically to damage any of the um, more moderate members that are up for re-election in really key swing districts next year. Um, and so certainly exhaustion was part of it. Uh, you hear that all the time from House Republicans say, we just need to get to somebody. We need to do something about <laughs> Israel. We need to avoid a shutdown next yeah. month. 
But uh, Johnson essentially uh, was a consensus candidate at the end of the day, even if he wasn't generally well known beyond the House Republican conference itself. Right. And uh, it's a victory for Mike Johnson. It's also a victory for somebody else as Matt Gates, uh, who led the fight to oust uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, is admitted right away on the Steve Bannon pod- podcast, basically claiming credit. Uh, Jeff, here is Mike uh, Matt Gates. MAGA is ascendant. And if, if you don't think that moving from Kevin McCarthy to MAGA Mike Johnson shows the ascendance of this movement, and where the power in the Republican Party truly lies, uh, then then you're not paying attention. I uh, hate to say it, Jeff, but he's right, isn't he? Yes. Uh, first, I have a question for you, Bill, which is, that, is that the first time you've ever pulled audio from the Steve Bannon podcast? Uh, yes, I admit, I'm guilty. <laughs> <laughs> Shame on us, but there you go. <laughs> um, that's that's absolutely the, uh, the, the, the case. Um, I mean, remember, Kevin McCarthy's original sin, we can argue what his original sin was, uh, but it may have been his his deal with the Freedom Caucus that allowed one member to call for his ouster. And that was ultimately his undoing. Um, the and, and the problem I think they had with him is that Kevin McCarthy never really had a set of fixed principles apart from wanting to be speaker and wanting to expand Republican power. Um, he wasn't really a movement conservative ever. He wasn't mm-hmm. passionate about this area of policy or that area of policy. Uh, and now they have a guy who is, uh, you, you only have to look as far as the, as the January 6th issue. Um, even Tom Emmer, uh, who, who signed on to the, to the, uh, amicus brief in the Texas case, uh, just after uh, mm-hmm. just after the election, uh, he wasn't enough because he he voted to, to certify the election, and immediately you got uh, Trump bleeding out his Truth Social post, taking down Emmer. Emmer's whole candidacy lasts what four hours, yeah, uh, and, right. and that's it's not enough. Um, but now. You've got this guy who is absolutely a movement conservative, mm-hmm. um, Christian, spending, abortion, January 6th, the whole nine. Um, speaking of which, on January 6th, he, he led the amicus brief uh, for, the, for the Texas case. He organized the signatures in the House uh, and sent it to the Supreme Court. Uh, Supreme Court didn't listen. But yeah, uh, I, I would... And he, I think he was, the fact is he was broadly acceptable, uh, which is a, a little surprising that he got all the, all the minority votes. I'm sorry, not the minority votes, but the, the centrist votes as well. Um, Thomas Massey, who was one of those, one of those conservatives who voted for him, told a bunch of reporters that, um, quote, nobody hates him yet. That's his best asset. <laughs> right. Uh, and as you pointed out, uh, uh, Emmer was shot down by Donald Trump, and uh, even though Donald Trump did not endorse Mike Johnson, he strongly suggested that they all vote for him, which every single Republican did. So who is this guy? Uh, Linda, no surprise, yesterday um, Johnson went did his first cable TV interview. Of course, it was with Sean Hannity, and he said, this is all you need to know 
about me. Here he is. Someone asked me today in the media, they said, it's curious, people are curious, what does Mike Johnson think about any issue under the sun? I said, well, go pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. That's, that's my worldview. That's what I believe. Uh, Linda, <laughs> we're now, uh, the Bible is the document, not the Constitution. I mean, what does this say about Mike Johnson? Right. So, yes, he has uh, what he says, a biblical worldview and, uh, you know, the core principles of our nation, uh, he says, reflect biblical truths and biblical principles. Um, And he's been on the record saying things like uh, this means that all authority comes from God and that the distinct realms of God ordained authority uh, are his you know, the family, the church and government. Now, I just have to say, we we can't use this as an opportunity to, you know, dunk on religion. Religion is one of the founding reasons for this country, right? Freedom of religion. And people have all kinds of views. Does this mean that he is going to institute some kind of theocracy on Capitol Hill? I seriously doubt it. Um, but this is just an important part of him. And one of the first issues that's coming up related to religion is uh, this issue on, um, on abortion pills. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, a majority of House Republicans back a provision in the um, food and agriculture funding bill that would ban the mail delivery of abortion pills nationwide. Uh, so here we go, right, right into the, the deep end of, uh, you know, one of the hottest topics of the day, which is abortion rights. And, we know what Mike Johnson thinks, but that doesn't mean he can dictate to his, to you know the, even just Republicans how this will be handled. So uh, you know, big, yeah. big 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 issue here. Let me also say this: you know, Mike Johnson is so. You know, you said that the Republican con- people knew who he was within Congress, but <laughs> there were members who were googling Mike Johnson when uh, when he was the the, the last. <laughs> successful nominee um he could i could see a, a kind of nixon in china moment for him where he's got firm conservative credentials established and that in some ways gives him the freedom to go against that without just losing it immediately and facing a motion to vacate i'm just going to throw that out there uh, that would be an interesting development. <laughs> keep hope, keep hope alive. Yeah. But Zach, that uh, Linda mentioned this agricultural bill. That's just one of the big challenges that he faces. Right, the government shutdown right around the corner. Uh, the whole question of Israel and Ukraine. Uh, yes, last night on Sean Hannity, um, he said, "No, we're not going to link the two of those together. We have to bifurcate, uh, support both, but don't do them both at the same time." What do you? What do you? What is your read? I guess on his ability to govern a and particularly avoid a government shutdown. I mean, that's the central question right now. Um, I think his voting record is more conservative than your average member of Congress, and certainly more conservative than your average House Speaker. Um, but and there's a there's an old adage that leadership in Congress is followership, 
And at the end of the day, he's going to need to find legislation that can appeal to the vast majority of House Republicans, because let's face it, most stuff in the House only passes because with the votes of the majority. Now, there are exceptions, things like the debt ceiling deal, uh, you know, funding the government at the end of September and avoiding the shutdown, at least the first time this year, maybe. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the Israel-Ukraine aid is a, is a really key example of that. And this is somebody who actually voted to strip Ukraine aid out of the annual defense policy bill, the NDAA, voted against Ukraine aid on the floor as a standalone provision, but recognizes as speaker that plenty of his members want to see more military support for Kyiv in its effort to uh, rebut Russia's invasion. And so uh, it's kind of a King Solomon split the baby mentality. It says, let's put both measures on the floor, aid for Israel, aid for Ukraine, both in the uh, tens of billions of dollars. Uh, and get both of them over to the Senate, which obviously wants to pass pass both of those. So there's obviously a lot of procedural questions on how exactly that would work. But I think it speaks to the the sort of fraught politics that Johnson and House Republicans are facing right now. There's one other thing, uh, big, big uh, cloud, if you will, hanging over Johnson's head. You've all referenced his efforts in the uh, really working closely with Donald Trump to lead House efforts to overturn the election. That was a, one question that Rachel Scott of ABC threw to Mr. Johnson when he walked out of the conference having been nominated for speaker. Uh, this has been seen over and over again, but let's play the sound one more time. Rachel Scott asking him about his efforts to overturn the election. Johnson, you help lead the efforts to overturn the 2020 election with Lowell Keyes. Next question. Yeah, Virginia Fox hollering, shut up. And Mike Johnson simply says, next question. Jeff, he's going to have to soon get beyond on that issue. Next question. Yeah, it's an important question. Um, People need to keep asking it. And I think indeed on Capitol Hill, they will keep asking it. And he's going to have to come up with a better answer than that. Um. I think the other politically, the other thing about Johnson is that Trump slash Republicans have two major vulnerabilities right now. Um, It was obvious in the 2020 midterms. It's just as obvious right now. Those vulnerabilities are abortion and election denialism. And he arguably makes them weaker on both fronts, especially because he is so ill-defined in the minds of the American public. I mean, even after the last two days headlines, if you did a poll right now, I guarantee Johnson doesn't have more than 25, 30% name ID nationwide. Uh, So Democrats are going to have a lot of opportunity to define him and identify him and guess how they're going to identify him uh, via abortion and January 6th. Right. Um, (laughs) I think um, Pete Aguilar, when he was uh, nominating uh, Hakeem Jeffries yet once again uh, in the last round of voting, uh, made the point that you just made, um, Jeff, just just, uh, for the sake of our listeners, here's Pete Aguilar saying, here's who Mike Johnson is. This has been about one thing. This has been about who can appease Donald Trump. (laughs) Very simply and very very directly. Uh, But Linda... One of the first things, before he went on Sean Hannity, mm-hmm. uh, Mike Johnson also went down to the White House, to the White House, to meet with and say hello to President Biden, 
which raises the issue of there is this little impeachment thing going on out mm-hmm. there. What's the White House reaction? How do they uh, see Johnson uh, as someone they can work with or, you know, fear the worst? I mean, like many of us, Mike Johnson is kind of a a black box. We don't know what we're going to get. I mean, he has so he was technically number seven in the Republican leadership, but he as head of the Republican Study Committee. But really, he wasn't in in any way in Kevin McCarthy's inner circle. Um, so it's, there's a giant learning curve here. Uh, we're all trying to figure out what this guy's about and what, and not just what he, we, we know what he believes on, you know, in terms of his personal beliefs, but in terms of how he will handle the mechanics of the speakership, um, it's a good sign that he was willing to go to the white house and sit down with Joe Biden, uh, and just sort of get to know him. We're in the early, early stages here. There's a race to define Mike Johnson. Uh, with the public, uh, the 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 eighteen Republican members of the House who were elected from districts that voted for Joe Biden are now going to be peddling furiously to distance themselves from him. Uh, and so, for Joe Biden, there's a there's a dual and in some ways conflicting goal here. One is to work with the guy to pass legislation, but also to use him as a cudgel to uh, retake control of the House in next year's election. And I just want to add really quickly, the, the, the point on his uh, efforts to, to overturn the results of the 2020 election are particularly salient because if House Republicans keep the majority in next year's midterms, um, they would be in a position to oversee the certification of the 2024 presidential election uh, yeah. on January 6th, 2025. Uh, yeah. And so how he handles that, I think, is uh, is not just politically important, but also substantially important. Yeah, good point. Well, if it was overall a good week for Mike Johnson, it was not a good week for Donald Trump. Uh, let's take a quick break and then come back and see the latest happening in Trump world, particularly Trump's legal world here on today's Bill Press Pod and today's Reporters Roundtable a uh, quick break, and then we'll be back with uh, Linda Feldman, Jeff Dufour, and Zach Cohen. And today's Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod is brought to you by the good men and women of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the UFCW, under the leadership of Mark Perone, President Mark Perone, whom, by the way, I saw on the guest list for this week's state dinner. Congratulations, Mark. Hope you had a good time. Uh, the UFCW, they're the uh, union workers that most of us encounter uh, most often in our daily daily uh, activities. They are the ones who uh, serve us in the great retail stores like Macy's and Nordstrom's and our big grocery chains like Ralph's and Costco uh, and also chemical plants, cannabis plants, and our meat and poultry processing plants. We salute them for their good work, thank them for their longtime support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website. You'll be impressed with all the many activities they have and all the many ways they serve us. Their website at ufcw.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, 
you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back on this Friday morning with today's roundtable. Uh, happy to be joined by Zach Cohen, congressional reporter for Bloomberg Government, Jeff Dufour, editor-in-chief of the National Journal, and Linda Feldman, Washington Bureau Chief, White House correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor. Loyalty, loyalty is the one word in the Trump world uh, that he always says is the most important. Um, he demands it um, this week. <laughs> Uh, he found out that <clears throat> maybe some of the people um, don't feel the same way about loyalty towards him. Here is um, his former attorney, Jenna Ellis, in a Georgia courtroom this week. I relied on others, including lawyers with many more years of experience than I, to provide me with true and reliable information. What I did not do, but should have done, Your Honor, was to make sure that the facts the other lawyers alleged to be true were in fact true. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. And she's not the first, Linda. She is the third after Sidney Powell and Ken Cheesebro. Uh, there was also a, a clerk who's less, maybe less important, who, uh, plead, but the other three, the three lawyers all pleaded guilty. Uh, a huge setback for Donald Trump, Linda. It is. Um, we There's a lot we still don't know. I mean, the, the significance uh, of these three um, taking a plea deal de- really depends on the power of their testimony and, and whether other defendants cooperate. Jenna Ellis uh, and her tears, she was uh, implicitly throwing um, Rudy Giuliani under the bus. Uh, he hasn't been offered a plea deal. Um, John Eastman is another one. Um, uh, he's the one who wrote the central memo arguing that, that Mike Pence could overturn the results of, of the certification of Biden's victory. Um, so where does this all go? It's, uh, you know, it, it's the classic RICO um, strategy to go for some of the lower fish, get them to plead out and then put the squeeze on the higher ups. So who, you know, Donald Trump, of course, hasn't been offered a plea deal, um, but this this certainly does not look good for him. And and I have to say, as a woman, I'm I was just embarrassed, profoundly embarrassed for Jenna Ellis um, to stand up there and say, oh, I had no idea. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, I, I trusted others with the facts. I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Not she should have done her own research. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, any. Yeah. You know, as. In journalism, you know, whenever you're editing something, you got to say, wait, does this make sense? I mean, you know, people are saying, where did you go to law school? <laughs> you know, the, the Mike Cohen School of Law. I don't know. 
Well, so as a, as as much of a shocker as those three were for us, those of us who followed this in Washington, uh, Jeff, the big shocker was Mark Meadows. I mean, there's nobody knows more. Nobody was closer to Trump. Nobody who was there more every single minute of the day than Mark Meadows, uh, who has remained totally loyal to Trump. Uh, again, ABC reporting that he's uh, cooperating now with. Um, the special counsel. That's yeah. the big body blow, isn't it? It is. Um, and it was the, the same day, in fact. On, on one day, Trump sat in court listening to Michael Cohen testify about his sham business empire, found out about Jenna Ellis, and then later that day found out about Mark, Mark Meadows. That is, that is not a good day legally. In a whole string of bad days legally <laughs> for Trump over the last uh, few weeks, that is probably probably the worst. Um, to to piggyback on Linda's point, you know, uh, in the in his own testimony, Michael Cohen had mentioned a couple times that Trump effectually effectively functions like a mob boss in terms of how he uh, gives direction, and this is exactly what you do in a RICO case: you roll up the chain. Uh, bigger and bigger fish until you finally get to the to the biggest fish, and uh, that's you know to to put it in a in in mafia terms, he's the Meadows is the capo right below the boss, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The most interesting thing about Meadows, and he spoke to them three times uh, in in exchange for blanket immunity, was he said that he made very clear to Trump several times that. There was no fraud that could overturn the election and that it was on the level. It was one of the most fair elections ever held, unlike what he said in his own book. Yes. Uh, where, he, yes. where he said the exact opposite, uh, that that the, the election was obviously rigged and fixed and all that, uh, probably because that's what sells books. Right. Yeah. So was he lying then or is he lying now? Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, uh, and I'm curious, Zach, whether what impact uh, all of this is having on Trump's loyalist in the United States Congress, whom you talk to all the time, uh, and reference to the, to for example, to the New York State uh, trial and Michael Cohen's testimony this week, uh, the president himself was forced to take the stand and testify. The judge said, I don't believe what you're saying and fined him $10,000, as we know. After which Donald Trump basically came out uh, and said, indictment? What indictments? Here he is. Mr. Mr. President, you said Sidney Powell you know. Washington were Are you concerned that you won't be covered by a pretty client privilege? No, not at all. I'm, uh, we did nothing wrong. We did nothing. This is all Biden. Indictments and impeachments. And this is all about Biden. He can't do anything right. The only thing they know how to do is cheat on elections and election fraud. Uh, this is all Biden stuff. All of these indictments that you see. I was never indicted. Practically never heard the word. It wasn't a word that registered. I was never indicted <laughs> 91 <laughs> times. So, Zach, did the, 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 the Republican members of the House just, you know, just ignore this? Does it have any impact? Do you see any weakening maybe in their loyalty? Not really. I mean, the fact that um, at, <laughs> at one point House Republicans, um, you know, ha had briefly considered Tom Emmer, who I think it's it's no, I think we talked earlier about how, um, his, um, 
opposition to the effort to overturn the 2020 election, you know, got him crosswise with Trump and his allies, probably doomed his speakership within four hours. Um, most of the conversation among House Republicans has not been around Trump's indictments, but uh, their own investigation into Biden and his mm. family. And that's been that's been the the tactic for months now, especially from Jim Jordan, the the former speaker nominee and current chairman of the Judiciary Committee and the uh, the Select Committee on Weaponization of the Federal Government, as it's called. Actually, one of the first things House Republicans did when they took the majority was create that select committee. And the goal has been to cast these investigations as uh, as politically tinged. You know, there's no evidence to suggest that that is the case, but that has been their argument. Um, and so, no, I haven't really seen a, a lot of evidence that these indictments are weakening him, um, certainly among members of Congress. That being said, I think it's certainly factoring into the 2024 presidential race. I think if some of these other candidates that are running against him, people like Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Ron DeSantis, uh, whoever ends up becoming the anti-Trump candidate, I would assume that one of their big arguments will echo that of, you know, former governors like Chris Christie or Asa Hutchinson, who are saying we can't have uh, somebody who's been indicted on federal charges be the nominee of the party. What if he's not even on the ballot in 2024? Uh, and so I would imagine that would be the forum where you see most of the direct attacks uh, or the direct references to these cases. So, hey, Bill, if I could yeah, just add something on absolutely. that. That sound clip on Trump uh, brings up another point for me, which is that the the Biden camp is going to start hitting Trump on his own age and mental frailties, as they call it. Um, they're going to start playing clips a, a lot like that. And and emphasizing that, hey, yeah, Biden's 80, but Trump is, is 77 and Trump has more than his own share of of, of malapropisms They're They're not going to just totally cede that ground uh, to the to the Republican side. Uh, yeah, I do think you have to make the point that if uh, uh, Biden were to say some of the things that Trump has said lately, uh, Republicans would have made a great big deal of the malaprops, uh, yeah. as you point out. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, while you're there. A couple of other issues I'm going to touch on before we break, important to touch on. And one is the Middle East. Look, we're not uh, military experts in terms of the conduct of the war, but we could talk about the political fallout of the Middle East. Uh, the United States strongly um, in support of Israel after the vicious attack by uh, on October 7 by Hamas against Israel. Jeff, do you see either party uh, benefiting from this and the political fallout or or the kind of even across the board? No, I think it's it's way too soon to tell um, if there's any sort of, of political benefit to either party, especially because the the loyalties uh, tend to tend to bifurcate across the parties. Um, the one caution I, I would give uh, on the Democratic side is that, you know, the the party that's divided is the party that's losing. And it's Republicans that have been divided for very publicly now for, for weeks and, and months. Um, the Democratic side and Biden in particular has been very deft in sort of keeping the, the far left wing at bay. Uh, and now ever since the, uh, since the Hamas invasion, a lot of these folks on the far left are are sticking their heads up and and becoming uh, targets. Mm -hmm. So you you could see a, a 
kind of a split, at least on this issue, uh, on the left as well, that that threatens to to form a fissure in the in the Democratic coalition. Yeah. Uh, Linda, what's your take on that? I mean, from what we've seen, what we've heard, uh, Joe Biden could probably get elected with 90 percent of the vote in Israel today. Uh, yeah. Uh, does that does that broad support for Israel translate to broad broad support for him here in the United States? I'm not sure that it does. I don't know that it's a salient issue for most voters. Most voters are more interested in the economy, inflation, their their personal financial situation. But it 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 is important for Joe Biden. He he uh, nine Democrats voted against the resolution um, backing Israel and condemning Hamas right after Mike Johnson became speaker, um, and it was the usual suspects. It was basically the squad plus a few others. Um, and so they, they are who they are, um, people who, uh, have long, uh, lived on the left and, and are, uh, you know, broadly skeptical of Israel and, and it, it, the lack of, uh, of resolution to the Palestinian problem. Um, but I think in the main, this is uh, a good issue for Biden, um, whether he can keep the funding together, I don't know. Mm -hmm. The Israel and Ukraine funding, I should say. Um, Ukraine is in danger of being left out in the cold. I mean, funding for Israel is is easy. Both, yeah. We've got the vast majority of both parties wanting that. Um, but the Ukraine situation is is far dicier. Um, and, and there's a lot more money on the line for Ukraine. They're asking for over $60 billion as mm -hmm. opposed to 10 for Israel. So... Um, it's, uh, you know, how this war goes. Uh, I mean, with presidents, typically a success in foreign policy doesn't necessarily help, but if it's, a, but if it goes badly, uh, if it's a disaster, if Iran really decides, decides to ramp up all of its proxies in the region, then that could be really bad for Joe Biden if the entire region, uh, blows up. So many things have to play out. And uh, Zach, I want to wrap by just mentioning uh, tragically, again, here we are, uh, mass shooting number 566 in the United States up in Lewiston, Maine. Uh, but the reason I bring it up is there was a very, I thought, stunning development yesterday when the congressman from that area, Jared Golden, uh, Democrat, a fairly conservative Democrat, who has always voted against any gun safety resolution, certainly voted against a ban on assault weapons, totally changed his mind yesterday, and here he is at a news conference in Lewiston, Maine. I have opposed efforts to ban deadly weapons of war, like the assault rifle used to carry out this crime. The time has now come for me to take responsibility for this failure, which is why I now call on the United States Congress to ban assault rifles to the people of Lewiston, to the families who lost loved ones, and to those who have been harmed, I ask for forgiveness and support as I seek to put an end to these terrible shootings. Uh, Zach, I think I know the answer to this question. I want to ask you anyway, other than thoughts and prayers from members of Congress, are we likely to see any more members follow Jared Golden's uh, lead and maybe do something about assault weapons. 
I think Golden's remarks were, were really rather remarkable. He was one of the five Democrats who voted as, as, recently, as recently as last year uh, against an assault weapons ban on yeah. the House floor. Uh, two of them have since left Congress. Uh, the other two are uh, Texas Democrats in competitive districts. And so uh, the fact that you're seeing this shift away, uh, you know, this sort of hollowing out of even Democratic uh, support for the current status on assault weapons ban, I think is, uh, is an important moment in American politics. Uh, look, I mean, the, the fact that a House of you know, Republicans are never going to bring up an assault weapons ban bill, and so the issue is not really likely to be on that front, uh, at least for the next you know year or so, as long as House Republicans are still in charge. And certainly if Senate Republicans manage to flip the majority in next year's election, which I'm operating on the assumption that they're likely to do, um, the you know something on that front is unlikely but you know it's it wasn't that long ago that uh after the uvalde shooting the tragic shooting in texas um when there was a bipartisan majorities in both chambers that passed um strengthening to background checks and mm-hmm. um incentivizing states to implement uh so-called red flag laws which would allow families and friends to petition courts to um, remove an individual's ability to have a firearm if they were deemed a threat to themselves or others. And so political uh, interest in uh, gun safety legislation can happen in the face of or in the aftermath of these tragic occurrences. Um, but certainly something like an assault weapons ban, um, which has since expired, you know, something that um, the late Senator Dianne Feinstein had championed, um, that seems unlikely given today's uh, political alignment. Uh, and, and as you point out, as long as Republicans control the House, it will never even be brought up for a vote. Um, just two other quick mentions here uh, before we wrap, and that is, um, boy, breaking news, Larry Elder. You know who he is? Uh, Larry Elder has dropped out of the Republican 2024 primary and endorsed Donald Trump for what that's worth. And on the Democratic side, Congressman Dean Phillips from Minnesota who has said that uh, said yesterday that Joe Biden has done a spectacular job as president, but he announced that he's going to run against him anyway uh, in the Democratic primary, uh, for what that's worth. Just wanted to mention the update on 2024. Uh, and with that, a great big thank you to today's panel uh, for their insights on the news of the, of the week, to Zach Cohen, Jeff Dufour, and Linda Feldman. But we're not going to let you run away into the weekend without... Uh, just finding out what's the one story this week that, or lately that really caught your attention and stopped you in your tracks, our favorite story of the week. Uh, Jeff, could you start us off, please? I feel like when you ask me to do this, you're inviting me to give my own version of the Orwell's two minutes hate. <laughs> so, so, so here we go. Okay. There's, a, there's a, a, a famous New Yorker cartoon that I, that I clipped and saved which has two dogs talking and the one dog says to the other dog, it's not enough that dogs win. Cats must also win. <laughs> and that bill is how I feel about the Philadelphia Phillies. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I am. And I know you probably have some lovely people from Philadelphia listening. Some of them I'm sure are good people. Um, but, but I, but I'm so, I'm so gleeful that they didn't make the World Series. Oh, it is absolutely yeah. my favorite story of the week. They won oh. one Super Bowl, and now they're up on their high horse, the Philadelphia sports fans, making them somehow even more insufferable than they were to begin with. Um, and so that's uh, – I 
I'm going to root for the Arizona Diamondbacks oh. mm. for for no other reason that they than they knocked off the Phillies, and I am forever in their debt for that reason. Oh, Jeff, and I thought we were friends, too. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were the biggest, even though I must say, when I was a kid, my brother was a big Phillies fan. I was always a Philadelphia A's fan. Oh, <laughs> so, interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's how far back I go with that with that team, but anyhow, I, I must say I was I was disheartened. That's the one baseball game that I have stayed up to watch this entire year. The one game that I watched, uh, rooting for the Phillies, and was heartbroken when they didn't make it. So, anyway, still love you, Jeff. Anyhow, Linda, how Thank about you? you? <laughs> so I'm glad you said lately because this the story that I loved actually was a week ago Thursday. So it was mm. a little over a week ago, but it was the story. In the Washington Post, the headline was, forget dating apps. Senator Grassley's office has <laughs> 20 marriages. I just love, I love that. We're, you know, we're in an age where marriage is on the decline. People see marriage as optional. But, you know, when you work for Chuck Grassley, you're with like-minded people and, and it's natural. I mean, office romance, I think, had, had, has taken a hit because of the whole Me Too thing. But if, if you're working for Chuck Grassley, you might just find love. Um, and that just warmed my heart at a, at a very uh, difficult time in this country. Yeah, Chuck Grassley. He's got two crops, right? Corn and marriages. <laughs> and he himself has been married 69 years. I mean, wow. There wow. you go. Good role model. Yeah, I did see that story. Of Chuck Grassley, of all... Of all people, right? Of all the offices, you wouldn't necessarily <laughs> think that one, but there you go. Um, and Zach, uh, how about you? What stopped you in your tracks? Uh, and, and I will say, I, I talked to uh, the chief of staff for Senator Grassley after that uh, oh. uh, post went viral, and she said she did not expect uh, quite that much <laughs> attention to her wedding. Um, uh, I'm going to cheat and actually combine two different stories that have a similar theme. The speakership has not really given me a lot of time to do a lot of reading, um, but I did take the time to read through uh, the entirety of the latest issue of The Atlantic. Uh, Jeff, you're and mine, uh, former colleagues. Yep. Um, and there was a great profile of, of Vice President Kamala Harris um, by Elena Plott um, that really raised, I think I had wondered for so long why Harris's approval ratings um, had been so low uh, and why she was seen as uh, not quite up to the task of being vice president. I wondered how much of that was sexism and racism. But I think the really key point of that story was uh, how this interview early in her tenure sort of cemented her image. Um, and, I'll, and I'll pair that with my colleague Kate Ackley at Bloomberg Government wrote a great story pointing out that of the 14 candidates for speaker, none of them were women. And, you know, she asked a couple of them, like, why didn't any women run for speaker? And the answers ranged from why would we run for a job that we wouldn't win? And, you know, we're, we're smarter than that. And, you know, we're in a position to do something like that. And I think both of them just speak to uh, sort of a systemic issue in this country where women face higher hurdles to political office and therefore political power. Mm -hmm. Good point. I'd also t uh, team the uh, Atlantic profile of... Uh... Vice President Kamala Harris, which was excellent with the last Sunday's New York Times profile as well, uh, and reading the two of them, uh, says a lot about um, how she stands today and what her chances are uh, in 2028 or beyond. Uh, okay, so my favorite story of the week, 
we all of you have talked about stories that were reported. I want to I want to mention one that wasn't reported. Um, and I'm so I'm now reading Cassidy Hutchinson's book Enough, uh, and I'm pretty well through it. I get to the night I was reading this week, the night of January nineteenth, the last night of the Trump presidency, and it is chaos in the White House. And about 10 o'clock at night, Cassidy Hutchinson, the chief of staff to Mark Meadows, of course, is in her office. Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, comes running in saying, where's Mark? She said he already went home. Well, where are those classified documents he had? And she said, well, he took them home with him. And Pat Cipollone just explodes. And he says, damn it, come on. It was worse than that. Uh, He can't take classified documents home. We can't allow that. We got it. Call him up right now and tell him he's got to get in the car, come back to the White House, bring those documents back here, uh, which Cassidy Hutchinson agrees to do. Now, here's <laughs> here's my favorite story, at which point Pat Cipollone says, quote, oh, and while you're at it, tell him we are not going to give a pardon to Kimberly Guilfoyle's gynecologist. <laughs> uh, now... <laughs> I don't know whether any of you knew that story, but I never knew it before that. I almost fell over when I read that. And that's all we know. We don't know who her gynecologist is, why he needed a pardon, what he did to deserve a pardon, why Kimberly Guilfoyle was around demanding pardons. I mean, I found the whole thing just absolutely mind-boggling. So uh, I challenge you all, that's your, <laughs> that's your homework, go out and find out what the hell is this about and why didn't we know about it? There you go. Anybody, any ideas? No? There you go. That surprised me. I couldn't begin to to guess. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, That does speak to the chaos in the Trump White House at that time. And with that, a great big thank you to our panelists today. Zach Cohen from Bloomberg Government Congressional Reporter. Uh, Jeff Dufour, editor-in-chief of the National Journal, Journal, author of the Sunday Nightcap Newsletter, and Linda Feldman, Washington Bureau Chief and White House Correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor. And a great big thank you to all of our good friends for joining us today. Uh, now have a great weekend. And we invite you to come back on Tuesday. On Tuesday, the next podcast, we're going to be talking with Carl Hulse, who's sort of the grandfather of all the Washington Carus- uh, Capitol Hill correspondents for the New York Times, and he'll give us his take on our new speaker and where we go with MAGA Mike Johnson at the helm. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend. See you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.